Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Valerie Libsay. You can connect with Valerie at her website, ghostlightleadership.com. Her book, which we spend a large portion of the conversation talking about and working through, the book is called Leaving the Ghost Light Burning, Illuminating Fallback in Embrace of the Fullness of You. She's also on LinkedIn, Valerie Livesay, L-I-V-E-S-A-Y, and she has a YouTube channel. And additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. And Valerie has selected an organization local to her called the Monarch School in San Diego. All of these are linked in the show notes. And please join me in donating to the Monarch School, of which I believe Valerie speaks a little bit about at the end. So you'll see what a valuable cause you are contributing to. So the reason that I invited Valerie on, well, the really practical reason I invited Valerie on to be a guest is that one of my favorite past guests, Nadia Tarnchevsky, referred her to me. And Nadia in the email introduction said that Valerie is talking about a concept called fallback that I think will be really interesting to you. And when I read the book, I certainly immediately was drawn to the concept of fallback. So Valerie, for much of her career, has studied adult development theory. In essence, and we talk about this in the conversation, adult development theory talks about the, for lack of a better word, ascension that we make from maybe more of a primitive child state into having our own belief systems and making our own choices, having autonomy and agency in our lives. And eventually, at the self-transformed level of adult development theory, we're able to hold true a lot of different concepts and belief systems at multiple times. And so I'm not mired so much in the I, I'm able to see the collective and understand the we. One of the pitfalls of adult development theory over the time that it's been around is that people like myself look at this as a challenge where we need to ascend the ladder. Self-transformed is the goal. I want to be the most enlightened, most developed person possible. And in the book, Valerie talks about fallback, this concept that we all, when triggered, let's say, go into more childlike, primitive, and probably less celebrated places, places that we don't want to look at in our lives. There's lots of different reasons this might be true. And we talk about all the different factors that might contribute to that. But what I most love about Valerie's work is that she is able to identify how actually celebrating the parts of ourselves that we historically have not liked and the more childlike parts of ourselves and more childish parts of ourselves actually makes us a more complete dynamic and whole person and wholeness is something that is really important to me another really special part of this conversation is that i bring to light a lot of the parts of myself that i haven't been so proud of so we're really workshopping this book and valerie's work in real time my hope is that me going inward and and bringing the parts of myself to the forefront helps you make your own discoveries and celebrate parts of yourself that maybe you haven't celebrated in the past. Because if you do so, 
the inner peace that we're all looking for is much more accessible and possible. So with all of that said, I will let Valerie take it from here. Let's settle in, take a deep breath. <sighs> and enjoy this wide ranging and beautiful conversation with Valerie Livesay. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, Valerie. It's so nice to have you here. Lovely to be with you, Mike. It's going to be, I feel like we're going to have a nice exploration of our different casts of characters. I, I'm very much looking forward to getting to know more about my cast of characters. And in reading your book, I, I've done a little bit more discovery around it. So I'm happy to uh, talk about all the discoveries I've had and, and my experience of the book. And uh, before we go there, I'm going to be starting in the place that you know that we're going to be starting. Mm -hmm. I want to know, and, and this will inform in some ways, probably some of your cast of characters. What was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? So, yes, I knew that we were going there because I <laughs> heard a past podcast of yours where you asked that question. And I thought, what would my response be? And it really caused me to think about what was it like growing up at my dinner table? And and it wasn't real clear. You know, I didn't have an immediate memory. So I appreciated having the opportunity to sit with it for two reasons. One, just to recall, and I'll give you kind of two, two separate answers for that. So one is kind of early childhood when I, I grew up in Southern United States. And I remember sitting around the dinner table often with my grandparents, actually, we would have dinner with them a lot. And my granddad had a farm, a weekend farm that wasn't his, his normal job, but we would go out to his farm. And, and so a lot of the pre-dinner festivities kind of merge into this, like we would snap, snap beans and shut corn and do all the like, the Southern farm things. And I had really lovely memories of that. And then just kind of the joy of eating the things that you've grown and kind of put effort into. And I remember the conversations just being really lively and fun. And then my grandmother took forever to eat, probably because she was talking the whole time. So we'd <laughs> all be done and she'd sit there for another half hour afterwards. And then as I reflect on that question, I think about later in my childhood, we'd moved to my parents had divorced and we moved to be with my, to live with my dad and my stepmom. And, and I just remember those being very proper dinners, having, you know, a lot of rules around them. We did too. And when, when I was younger, I grew up in the South being respectful and polite and having manners was really a big thing, especially in that era, I think. And so, but it was more of the focus around my dinners in my later adolescence and just kind of how we presented ourselves. And so it felt not near as lively, not near as fun and and it's, yeah, and I, but it's, it wasn't a good or a bad, it just was. Mm -hmm. But when I heard you ask that question of another one of your guests, it made me think about what are, are my dinners now with my family like? Yeah. And is that what I want them to be? Like, if you were to ask my children in 20 years, what their, their family dinner table experience was, 
I don't know that I'd want it to be actually what it is for them because both my husband and myself grew up in, in this being proper, having manners, having good table manners. And it has been really impossible to instill that in my children. And I don't know why that is. So one of the things that we talk about a lot at our dinner table is, is a threat of sending my children to cotillion. because we clearly have not been good at instilling these table manners (laughs) into them. And so we're going to send them off so someone else can instill them for them. And so it's just fun now. Like that's a funny thing that we talk about it kind of, kind of a joke, but, but I was on the waiting list to put them in cotillion this year. Mm. So, but I would love I love the question because it made, and I actually brought it up at dinner that night when it felt like this is not my intention for how I want us to be the one time a day that we are all together. Hmm. So how do we want to be here? And and I'm really grateful for that inquiry and just for the the presence, the noticing that it inspired in me and allowed me to share with, with my family. Mm. Well, uh, from my vantage point, it just, it seems like an incredible gift for your children that you are asking yourself, what kind of dinner table memories do I want my children to have in 20 years? I think that already is setting the table, which is a terrible pun, but it's a, it's setting the table for you to get curious about, well, how can I start creating an experience that isn't maybe what I've been conditioned to create, which is maybe a little bit more proper and formal? And what do I want to create? And and sitting in that is, uh, in, in my estimation, like I said, from, from my vantage point, that's a, a really beautiful inquiry to be in. So thank you for going there. I I feel like I could appreciate your thoughtfulness with every single answer as I did before we jumped on here, because there's just a certain level of preparation that you put into it very clearly to look at your own experience and how you want to create your your experience currently with your family. And yeah, I really appreciate that. I have a, a curiosity of mine because I, I want to get into your book and and how it landed with me and and what it brought up with regard to the way I look at the parts of myself. One of the reasons it seems that you wrote the book is for your love of or your discovery of adult development theory. And I think there's there's multiple curiosities I have about this. But let's just start with, did you know, like when you went to college in your, it, it, you did go to college, yeah? Like in your in your late teen years? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm I went to Indiana University for my undergrad. And I think the question that you're going towards is, did I know that I wanted to study this? Is that what you're going to ask? Was your draw always to psychology, human behavior? No. Mm, so not on the surface. I, the Psychology, absolutely not. Human behavior, maybe. Because I wanted, I was interested, well, actually, initially, I went to school as a fine arts photography major. So I think there was some interest, I guess, I I don't think I'd articulated it at the time in capturing human behavior because it was, you know, the human photojournalistic photography that I was interested in. 
And I transitioned, as we often do in our undergraduate studies, to another course of study, but which was marketing and advertising. I wanted to work in the advertising industry, not on the creative side, more on the relational go between the client and the the creative aspect. Mm -hmm. And so I mean, I think in that, the the human component of what motivates people to do what they do is an aspect of it. I don't know that I, I knew that on the surface, like I would have probably never said that to you at the time, but as you asked the question, I wonder how much of it, it's such a good question because I, I've not really thought about it. As we started having this conversation, as I interrupted you and said, you're going to ask me, did I know I wanted to do this? And no, I didn't. But there is a a sense of wanting to be in relationship with people and also wanting to have some kind of creative aspect of my vocation, whether Mm -hmm. I was doing it myself or just being in the mix of it. Mm -hmm. So when when did you come across adult development theory and and why like I if I remember correctly there there's you, you felt seen in in a certain way that maybe there's a belief or notion that as adults we we stop growing and that our development happens when we're younger and I think that maybe adult development theory captured that in a way that you hadn't seen before but if you could just place us in what was gripping about it to you? When did it catch your attention? And yeah, where did like where did you go go from there? Yeah. So the timing was at the beginning of my doctoral program, and it was a doctorate in leadership studies. And one of the first classes that I took was adult development. So the situation of we as humans, as adults develop in a leadership studies doctoral program, I think is significant, you know, that we don't just show up and with the capacities to exercise leadership, no matter where we are in our meaning making and our sense of, of who we are in the world and who we are in ourselves. And when I encounter, I had not before encountered any theories of adult development. I think that I knew that we do continue to grow in some way, but it, again, it was like not an explicit thing that had been, that I'd been pursuing or, or that, that I would go out and speak about. And I encountered this theory of stage development, kind of this constructive developmental theory and that has its underpinnings in child development. And I thought, wow, just looking at how these stages are articulated, I can see where I've been in the course of my life. I can map map my life to this point against those. And and I can see where I could have the capacity to go. And that felt very opening up of possibilities to me. It, It did help me feel seen and kind of the challenges and the opportunities that had come before. But I again, it was really kind of a surface theoretical understanding with me just kind of dipping myself into this theory and saying, okay, how does this fit for me? And it did in many ways. But I couldn't, I couldn't find in the theory, at least explicitly, where 
my own experience was of not being able to show up with some capacities that according to the stages and where I figured I was at, I should have all the time. I knew I had them some of the time, but I knew there were many times when I did not have access to those capacities, to a way of seeing the world, a way of feeling and behaving and and taking on perspectives and complexity that would be stripped away. And so I was really drawn to for this theory that that means so much, you know, like that seems so spot on in helping me understand my development as a human and how it may connect to my exercise of leadership. Where is this part that that is alive in me? Is it alive in other people? And this part, this not being able to access our earlier, our less complex ways of knowing the world and ourselves in it is called fallback. And I didn't know that it was called that at the time, but ultimately I would discover that and I would continue to study that and to try to fence the field, tidy up the the theory of adult development that I was coming to love so much, you know, just like here are some little ragged areas edges, I'm going to make those smooth. And that's not at all what happened in the course of my research. I really ended up unraveling more, having far more questions than I did answers. And that in itself was a beautiful discovery. Mm. So I want to take a a swipe at explaining it from the the way that I understand it. And I think this will be a really good on-ramp into your book. So I look at development as, well, in, in adult development theory, and, and please feel free to jump in at, at any point to correct me, but there's, I think there's a realization that we start as children and even into our teen years and, and maybe even into our 20s, it's very common for us to think of ourselves as in like a first person, like the world is basically happening to me at all times, Right. And, and, and maybe even a, a more, a, a little bit more complex level is like, I have beliefs that are influenced by my upbringing and my society and, and other people also have beliefs, but there's more of a, a centric, maybe like my, but my beliefs are probably the right ones and, and everyone else's are a little bit off or, or maybe something like that. That's certainly, I, I fall into that all the time, that, that type of thinking. And may, and I think the most common stage of development where people start to get obsessed with this work is where you start to realize that you have agency and, and choice in your life, that you can start to believe any number of different things and the world isn't happening to you, but actually you have this kind of authorship that you are the creator of your own story at any given moment. And you, you, you know, you aren't your thoughts maybe is, is another way to put this. And yet uh, even more complex, and, and I'm sure there's many more layers to this, is that I am many layers. I'm, I'm not just any one set of things at any given time. And so I do have choice. And also I have many different identities and, and there isn't one identity that's right or one identity that's wrong. So a, a trap that I, that it seems really common, pervasive in the industry is that we think of our development in this very linear and ladder climbing. I think you call it a, a stair, a staircase stairway to, to heaven. heaven, stairway mm-hmm. to heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
of like the other, the lower stages are terrible. They're bad. They're, they're primitive. And as we get up, those are, those are better. That's the goal. We want to ascend to be the most developed, most evolved person ever. And what I, what I really appreciate about your book is that it points to so many different it, there's so many different things that it points to. One is it's it's not bad. Like there's no good or bad stage that we are, there's good reason for us being knocked back into a, maybe a more primitive or when we're reactive or, or triggered by something, there's really good reason that that's happening. And it's not something that we need to eradicate ourselves of. There's also, we're, we're influenced at any given time by so many different factors that your your book highlights. So it might be the, the culture of an organization we work at, might be the culture of our society. It might be that we are being brushed with a traumatic or even if it's a super lowercase t, right? Experience that that knocks us into a childhood memory that was tough for us. And there's certain identities that we probably are more praise for, more proud of on, on a normal basis that we're likely to lean on and other ways we show up that we that haven't been welcome as much. And so it's one of our amazing strategies that we would have is to say, okay, I'm going to be more of the thing that gets recognition and less of the thing that doesn't get recognition. And there, there's obviously a lot more there, but how did, like, what comes up for you is I maybe lay out the way that I interpret the the place for your book as it relates to adult development theory. I, that was beautiful. <laughs> you did an amazing job there. I, I don't know what else to say. We can like it's a wrap. We're all done. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have the shortest mic search for meaning conversation of all time. Just to <laughs> wrap it in a tight 20. <laughs> exactly. It's fit for Twitter. <laughs> I, I honestly think you did such a beautiful job of of explaining that in a really robust and concise way. So I I think I mainly want to just highlight a couple of things that yeah. you've already said. The the whole stairway to heaven idea, where later is better, more complex is better. We want to to scramble to get up to that point at a certain point because we think it's a promised land. I think that that's what I saw when I first encountered the theory that what are the possibilities for what's next and how can I get there the fastest? Because this stuff behind me, yes, the theory helps explain it. And boy, I don't like what that looked and felt like when I went through it. So mm -hmm. let me move past that. And the challenge with, with wanting to move past it is that we even, even once we move through these stages of development, we are not done with them and they are not done with us. It's not like we leave them behind, like I said, and stay at this, you know, like I, we call it the center of gravity in the field. Mm -hmm. I have the center of gravity, uh, developmental capacity. We, we don't always have access to that center of gravity. It really is a, in the ideal situation, what am I able to bring? But we are so often, as you explained, not able to bring, we're not in those ideal situations. We're not able to bring our full capacities. And when that happens, we do access these earlier parts of self that if we are thinking, yuck, that's where the ick is, 
then we spend most of our time pushing those away, pushing them down, denying them, acting like that's not a part of us, belittling that when we see it in others, because this is where we want to go. These later stages of development that have more complexity, that allow us to see and think and make sense of things in different ways. But the challenge is when we deny those parts of self and we judge them in others, we don't actually, one, we're not living into our full humanity. We're, we're living into a lie, right? Because that made us and it's part of us and development is often presented in this way in this kind of stair-step way because it's a complex theory and it's easier to understand in that way. And when you dig into it, though, the reality is we we go up and down the spectrum really fluid, fluidly. Many times we're traversing that spectrum in the course of a day. And sometimes we're accessing these earlier parts of ourselves on purpose because they serve us well and we know they serve us well in a given situation. My thoughtfulness, which can you know be interpreted in a couple of ways, is thoughtful, I think, heart thoughtful in many ways, but also precise, expert, like, let me get this in order, thoughtful, uh, let me be prepared, thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And that is a conventional aspect of development, the, you know, let me, let me present myself in this way which is valuable. It's as we said before we started recording, it's valuable to you. It helps you that I am thoughtful in that way. And it helps me that I'm thoughtful in that way. So it serves us. But if I am just pushing it away or only leaning into that thing, then there's a whole swath of ourselves of me that I'm not accessing. And so often when we're trying to, because when I set out to study fallback, I actually really did want to say, how do I, how do we stop falling back? I wanted to discover how do we stop showing up a smaller version of ourselves, one that it, that is shrunken and that feels tethered to something beyond our control. And then in the course of my research and my own human living and accompanying others, I realized there's so much richness and value and information in those smaller, earlier parts of self that are trying to bang down the door and get our attention and making a ruckus and causing a scene where we think we really need to send you to cotillion. (laughs) (laughs) making that connection (laughs) so much value that can really inform more of the richness and beauty of these later stages that we do want to grow into Hmm. i don't know if i answered your question (laughs) beautifully right so it it feels like we're we're like amplifying each other's message over and over like i i heard a, a deepening of the explanation that i gave and Maybe one, one thing that I want to make explicit, which it seems already pretty clear, but maybe would be helpful to really clearly define in this moment. Fallback, I guess, to me would be it, when you are, let's just say you're at a certain developmental level, something happens or you're in a certain environment and it it brings you back to a, a less complex version of yourself. Is that a, a good way to shorthand it? How would you describe it explicitly? 
I, I think that's a beautiful way to shorthand it. That I, the distinction that I would add in is that it is an unconscious mm. falling back and an unconscious being trapped in some ways in a less complex part of yourself with fewer capacities for a period of time that is temporary. The mm. temporary nature of it is important, but it's also this broad range of temporary. So it could be a minute. It could be an hour, it could be five days, it could be several months, but in the definition that I came to with the parameters that I established in it, this, you know, like these can be pushed up against as well. You know, there we're still learning about all of this, but in order for it to count as fall back, there would need to be spring forward that you would at least come back to your capacities that you had before and potentially even grow beyond those as a result of your fallback. Hmm. Yes. Thank you for that. So I, and I think maybe another level that I want to take this to is to give an example, a specific example of what fallback might look like for me. And then we can get into, I, I want to talk about some of the characters in the book and uh, the parts of them and what they brought up in me, because I think that would be really connecting for uh, those who are tuned in listening to this. So specific, a really specific example for me, if right now you were in earnest to say, like, Mike, you are doing a fucking terrible job interviewing me. You have no idea what you're talking about. You're an idiot or something like that, and and there's some edge and, and anger behind it, I would probably get knocked from, normally when I'm conducting an interview, I feel like I'm in some sort of flow. I'm coming across as informed and intelligent and like a, air quotes, like really got it together. Like I, like I know what I'm doing. So if someone challenges me and I, I would probably internalize this as incompetent or something mm-hmm. thereabout, that would very quickly knock me back into some sort of defensive stance where I'm trying to actually place myself in a, a moment where it's like you really said right now, Mike, you're, this is fucking terrible. I, you're, maybe you're checking your watch and like, I, I need to get out of here. Yeah. I'd want to shrink and be invisible. Like I, I really would, I'd probably be a little shell shocked. I would be more likely to stumble over my words would, I would, probably be a little bit more awkward, shy, reserved. And these are more, they're earlier stages of my development where when I was younger, if I didn't feel like I was had connection or some established safety, then I would want to like go hide into a corner. And, and I also have historically not liked that about myself. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to bring that in as a, a really specific example of fallback that among other things, I have really looked more closely at not only in this book, but in, in working with like doing my own inner work with the coach that I work with and in the courses I do, really shining light on these parts of myself that historically I have developed so many strategies and developmental tools to like kind of hide them and silo them away, put them in the attic of, of my, uh, my house, if you will my internal house. And I say that because it's it's incredibly healing to actually just shine light on these parts of ourselves that we historically probably have not had some sort of right relationship with. Mm. Yeah. So I just want to start by saying thank you 
for your willingness to first admit that to yourself and then to admit it to me and then admit it to the millions of listeners who are going to hear you (laughs) (laughs) say this because these feel like poor woundings. And, And you mentioned that, that, that you could see this part of you in younger younger mics at younger times in your life. And, and there's a point at which for many of us, we just say, I didn't like that. I didn't like that situation that I was in. I don't like that part of me. And I don't want to admit that that's true. And so I'm just going to like close the door on it and act like it didn't exist. And I'm going to go in on with my next interview and someone will ask me how my day went and oh, it was great. And I was fabulous on, on this interview and I was in flow, even if you know that you felt like this inner, oh, what the hell, you know? And, and then that inner, what the hell would, would continue to come up for you um, because it has something that it's trying to tell you that you're not willing to listen to. And what that's usually about is a value that feels at risk risk to you in that moment. When someone, if I were to say to you, I can't believe I am wasting my time on this interview right now. You know, why do you even think that you are capable of doing something like that? I, I'm curious about, you know, what what feels threatened within you in that moment? I said the word incompetence before, and I I wouldn't say that competence is a, a value that I hold near and dear, but it's it's certainly a way that I like to come across. So if you were to ask me what's at risk, if I guess it's a it's a sense of belonging for me that I I really want to belong as a, a podcaster, like that's an identity that I'm wearing right now. And my sense of identity as a podcaster would would feel greatly at risk. Like I, yeah, my sense of belonging and uh, and safety would feel like I'm on shaky ground right now. This thing that I really care about is is really being questioned. And I'm wondering, as a coach, would you would you press me on this to get closer to a, a value that's like truer to me in in some way, like? I'm I'm happy to play with this. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I feel like that's very generous. What I would I want to know how what what your response would be at the you Mike now if I were to do this to you to say these things to you. What what would your response be? Like what how would you what would be happening in your body? Yeah. What would you say in response? What would your behavior be? What would mm-hmm. your inner feelings be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my heart would jump. That's that's a very familiar one. So there would be an initial heart jump. I think that my physiology, there would be this curling over that happens. I, I would literally make myself smaller physically. My breath would be really shallow. I'd probably get a little sweaty. My temp my skin temperature would get warmer. And energetically, I think, well, I'd be feeling shame. Shame for sure. Guardedness, defensiveness, fear, like lots of fear. 
and I would probably get really quiet and want to retreat. Like there would be in terms of fight, flight, or flee, I would want to flee and get the hell out of, out of here and be by myself. In a, in a really maybe a more childlike way, I would, I would almost have the sense of like, I want to just like curl up into a ball and like rock back and forth. And that would be my way of protecting myself in some way. Hmm. So I really appreciate your tapping into what the physical sensations of that would be too, because this is one of the biggest challenges of noticing when we're in fallback is noticing, like admitting mm -hmm. it to ourselves, right? And there's this thing that my colleague Thomas Arda refers to as a somatic signature. And I think it's a really beautiful way to, to connect to when we are in fallback. What is the shape that our body is making in fallback in this moment? So that when we are in another moment of fallback like this, we can use the wisdom in our bodies to to wake us up to it, to let us know that we are in that experience. So I just want to pause and say that noticing the shape of your body and fallback is really important. And, and I would, so I have another question about, would you, you said you would want to retreat, you could quiet. Would you say, thank you for your time. I'm sorry. I wasted it. And we'll just wrap this up right now. Or how would you, how would you be relationally with me? No, relationally? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question that, that flipped something for me. So I think what I would do, that would all happen after you and I had jumped off the call. What would, what would happen in real time, actually, I'd be feeling all the physical sensations, sensations I said, but there would be, I, I think a part of me would emerge that would double down on I'm going to show her I'm actually amazing as an interviewer. I would finish the interview and want to show you like, she's wrong. She's mm -hmm. I'm really good. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove it to her. So I think that I would have, I would start to take a more aggressive initial stance actually, and would, would see it through with every intention of proving that I'm so good at what I do. And she's, she better remember that. And afterwards, all of that would happen after we finish the conversation. And yeah, I think this, uh, this part of me that's stepping in and, and wants to, you know, be bolder and, and come across as the best interviewer ever. I would even want to confirm with you at the end, like, so that, like I changed tone there, huh? Didn't I? I really came across really good. That was, I'm telling you, that was good, right? And would want to ask you and like really be seeking your your validation. And, and that's probably the way it would happen. Only afterwards, once the conversation's done, would I then, I would feel really small and maybe sadness and, and grief would, would emerge as well. And I'd want to retreat. I mean, this is, this has actually happened in podcasts I've done too, by the way, this isn't a theoretical and it wasn't, no guess of mine has so far told me this is going really terribly but the way that i perceived it was was that his body language the the person i interviewed his body language seemed to be conveying to me the story that was running in my head is he thinks i suck like he really doesn't think this is going well and so i did have that after the interview was over i remembered saying to him 
I, I don't think I did well. I would love to like, I, I, I don't think I showed you what I really got here. And he said, it, you know, it was, it was good. And that if I had other questions, I want to ask him and we could set up another time. But as soon as we got off that call, I needed to shut it down for the rest of the day. Cause I was just in this shame spiral with myself of like, fuck man, that was terrible. You suck. Yeah, I, you. so I also want to acknowledge for the listeners who can't see you as you were talking about leaning in, in a way, and being, you know, bolder and let me show you how good I am when you were describing that. You actually were leaning in to the camera and you got bigger, taller, you know, you were putting on your costumes, right? You were, this is who I am. I'm going to assume this role to prove you wrong. And... So you've described kind of two different ways of being at different times, one in the moment and then one after the fact. And I appreciate the level of reflection that you've done on the real actual situation that you've been in the floor and then sharing it now. Do you, does it feel like two different parts of you there? Like, could you give these characters, because in my work, I, I use the theater metaphor a lot and talk about the ensemble of characters that makes us up when we think that we are this one enduring self, you know, showing up to all the scenes of our lives in the same way. And that's just not true. You know, we take on different roles. We wear different costumes. We read different lines with different people in different scenes at different times. And so part of the work is really kind of unearthing who are these characters that that make me up. And so do you have a sense of who those two characters are? Yeah, I do. It feels it feels really tender. I'll I'll start with the more tender one. So the the vulnerable, the the little one in me that that feels threatened where I've probably developed all sorts of other characters to step in and make sure that this this little one doesn't get seen. I had a a live-in, my parents both worked a lot when I was younger. So I had a, a live-in babysitter and she would always call me, she called me baby Mikey and then adolescent Mikey and teenage Mikey and adult Mikey and all the different, she kind of literally gave me different costumes I could wear based on where I was at in my life. But I, I called a tender younger one in me, baby Mikey, even if it was, you know, it's a seven-year-old version of me. I, I still, it still feels like baby Mikey, just like the raw, unadulterated, unfiltered. This is, this is just my essence, what I was like naturally without any conditioning, mm. which is partly, yeah, really quiet and reflective and, and awkward. And I can say that with a lot more groundedness now than I would have in, in the past. So that's the, the, maybe the more tender, that's the part of myself that I try and hide a lot of times that the really vulnerable part of me that isn't polished and has, has no idea what's going on a lot of the time, the more performative one, I, I don't think I've ever really named him in this way, but I, I think the performative part of me, I'm going to call like gregarious, the gregarious performer. Mm. And th this is definitely a costume that I put on that I, I want to be seen as for sure. I, a lot of times when I was younger, I loved, and I still do. I love watching sports. I love basketball is my favorite to play. It's my favorite to watch. And I love when a basketball player is so confident that like when he makes a three pointer, he's kind of like dancing up the court and posturing to the crowd a little bit. And 
I've always yearned. I, I, there was always this yearning in me to be that, that it, it felt so, so distant and so far away, but I actually do have a little bit of that in me. This, this, like this, this guy who can really look at a crowd and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm owning this shit right now. I'm good. Mm-hmm. And that, that is the part of me that gets activated when my competence feels at risk then I can I can step into this character who's like, I'm so good at what I do. It's unbelievable. Let me show you right now how good I am at what I do. Mm-hmm. So those are, there's probably other other parts, honestly, that that come into play there as well. But those are the, the two main players. Thank you for that. You create such beautiful imagery to go along with like the embodied feeling of these that that I've observed in you as you've kind of talked about these two characters. And so I I wonder who who is on the scene when your sense of belonging feels threatened. Hmm. I think I mean what's happening in me right now is I'm I'm very much in touch with with baby Mikey and when my sense of belonging feels threatened then it's at a certain point, I I might call on among other parts, but in this moment, it was gregarious performer. That would be the costume I I put on to step in. And does does that answer the question? Like, I think it's it's baby Mikey with the sense of belonging feeling threatened. It's him that feels his sense of belonging being threatened, mm-hmm. and then steps in gregarious performer mm-hmm. in this in this context. Yeah. And do you think that, I mean, I can see all the ways that that gregarious, gregarious performer meets your meets your needs, can meet the needs of others and and is kind of in some ways an antidote to baby Mikey. You know, mm-hmm. I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna show up. I'm not gonna run off and hide. And I wonder where does gregarious performer not serve you? Well, the first thing that comes up immediately is that it's just not authentic in in a lot of ways. So in some ways, it's actually really disconnecting for me to show up that way because it's, well, I'm reading into it a little bit, but in, in some ways I am, I'm showing that it's not okay for me to be vulnerable and messy and, and that whether the person or people I'm talking to are conscious of it or not, there's something actually really disconnecting about me not allowing my tenderness and my vulnerability to be there that, Ooh, I'm just, I'm a little scared actually. Like when I noticed some fear that came up for me when, when you said that would actually a lot of the time create much more connection in that moment. And for me to feel more settled in, in my body, more embodied and grounded then when I step into this performative role who might get, which is beautiful that I get a certain result that I'm able to actually finish the conversation without just shrinking into a, a tiny little ball. But if I were to run with, which I think is really common, honestly, if I were to run with gregarious performer as an identity for a really long time, I, I would be ignoring all of these different feelings, vulnerabilities, within me that are they're conveying something which you've been getting at this whole time they're they're guarding something that really matters to me that i'm i'm not letting myself see 
and and therefore other people can't see it in me either. So it's I, I think that's why. Well, now now I'm starting to like theorize a little bit and and talk outside of myself, but I think that that's why vulnerability has become almost trendy in in some ways to talk about is because we see how powerful it is for us to just like speak to what our experience is truly not in what we wish it to be or how we would ideally show up or any number of other different things. Yeah. I mean, I am exactly feeling exactly opposite of what you, the the scenario that you've set up. I'm feeling like you could run this whole podcast on your own. You don't need me here as a guest. That was really lovely to to see you walking through all of those things. The, you know, I I think that we would think gregarious performer is the me and my in my center of gravity self right Mm -hmm. this is the me that i want to be seen as this is how i want to see myself and and it doesn't always serve us so two the when you feel baby mikey coming on the scene and you just want to crumble and you know fold into yourself because you feel this sense of belonging being threatened, you know, that is you being smaller in one way and baby Mikey is there, whether you want him to be or not, but wait, 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 let me let the gregarious performer come on while he shuffles off into, you know, exit stage left or whatever. And, you know, put the spotlight on me because I'm the thing that I want you to see. But that too is a fallback character. That is not you as you're describing yourself in your bigness. Hmm. You're, you're, you're still saving something. You're saving being seen in a certain way. And, and that version of belonging there's the baby mikey version of wanting to belong and how that responds but then there's a gregarious performer who also wants to belong and is going to claim that in a different way but is still not you in in your bigness and and the thing is i think what you're also pointing out is we kind of go through these different characters is the full range of who you are all at once, right? You are baby Mikey and you are the gregarious performer. And then maybe, and I'm guessing there is, there's someone else here, another character, the authentic one Mm -hmm. who needs to be on the stage, who allows you to be vulnerable and create those conditions for deeper connection, which may be the thing that this guy was longing for, but not getting, which was causing him to withdraw. Maybe not, but, but even whether that had that impact, if you were to bring authentic Mike on the scene in that moment, no matter what his experience was, what would your experience be in terms of being able to meet your intentions for how you show up to the world and the podcasting world and the people that you interview and to yourself? Mm-hmm. That's the, the question is what would, can you, can you repeat that? Yeah. The, just the, I'm, I'm calling on, I'm calling an intention here, which is a big source of, of us beginning to imagine what who actually needs to be there mm-hmm. in order to help us achieve what we want to achieve, not in a 
air quote, achiever way, but in a, what is my purpose? What is my intention here? And so who needs to be on this scene in order to meet that intention? And it doesn't mean that baby Mikey doesn't need to be there. Baby Mikey needs to be there because he represents this feeling of wanting to belong and to be, and then gregarious performer wants to be seen and wants to be acknowledged for what you bring to the world. Those both need to be there. And then there's this other authentic part of you who needs to be seen in a way that is meaningful for you now at this point in your life. Yeah. So in, in internal family systems, this would be called the the capital S self. And I, I actually just go with that because internal family systems has been my on-ramp into this type of work. So we'll call it capital S self or capital M Mike. The capital M Mike works as well. And the, yeah, I guess the, the realization here is that my intention, that the end, if we were to go all the way down the line of like, what am I actually wanting out of all of these different performances that I'm putting on what's what's the end results that I want it's connection and belonging Mm -hmm. and there's a realization that actually the deepest possible connection that I can probably make in the moment to myself and therefore to you or whoever I'm talking to is for me to speak what is actually happening here and so there's an element of acknowledging the I'm just noted. So one way this might show up is I'm just noticing I have a lot of fear in me. And I'm also noticing that I want your approval and I want to perform a certain way. A capital M Mike would have all of these capacities, by the way, he's, he's in touch with all these different desires and feelings that I'm having. And so I'd be able to name that and say, that's what's really up for me right now. I just noticed that when I felt threatened that I wanted to shrink a little bit, I felt some fear. I could feel my skin getting hotter. I'm noticing that I want to perform and be impressive to you. And I just wanted to name that because just saying that helps me feel a lot mm. more grounded and, and centered. And, and and in doing so, that helps me get to that intention that I created for connection, for belonging. And maybe even on a deeper level, anything that I'm experiencing that I don't want people to see, someone else is experiencing the same thing invariably in some way or another. And so it fosters a lot of connection for me to say, ah, I'm so scared right now. I'm just really terrified. That brings up a lot of fear in me. That it helps to give other people, not not only myself, other people too, permission to say, Oh, I'm I'm scared. Also, I get scared when that happens, and there's there's nothing wrong with me for that. So the it does it really deepens that ultimate intention, that goal of connection. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there will be some people, and there will be you and me at times too, who are able to get to the point of admitting it to ourselves, but not being willing to admit it to someone else, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm there are layers of deep fear and loss at each expanding, you know, opening of the full self to the world. And so it's possible that it's a, you're going to make incredible strides, just noticing, just going through this 
thought process and heart process yourself of I'm coming into this scene. I'm going to be hosting a podcast with this person who I admire greatly and I really want their approval. And my intention is to create deep belonging and connectedness with this person and authenticity. And I here are the characters that are likely to show up on this scene. Baby Mikey, protecting my sense of belongingness. If that feels threatened in any way, then the gregarious performer is going to come on wanting to be seen, wanting to be proven, you know, capable and worthy of being here on this podcast stage. And, and I am also going to need capital M capital M Mike to, to, to say, I hear you to baby Mikey and to the, the gregarious performer. And I'm going to represent that in this way by being forthcoming about it. Now it, it may just be, be being forthcoming within yourself. Mm-hmm. And where this ties into leadership though, is we can't possibly allow we can't possibly transform an organization or expect anything like this any kind of deep connection and authenticity and buy-in beyond a surface level if we are not willing to do it ourselves so even if you're just doing it yourself on your own and never admitting this to anybody then that's progress but once you say it out loud too you know then it does open up potentially the opportunity for someone to say that back to you. Like even Mm -hmm. before we got started recording, I think I told you, I always get stage fright, no matter how many of these I do. And you said, I do too. And I've done over 80 of these. And (laughs) this is the opportunity to like feel human together and our fears and our longing to be seen in a certain way is just so incredibly powerful and okay we've said it we put it out there and now it's lost its grip on us a little bit mm-hmm. I'm re- I really appreciate the the space that you're holding for this and it's 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 beautiful to have it unfold in this way I also I love the way that you weave character stories into the book because it's in a way it's what we're doing right now is I'm taking people on a journey with me and a few people that you've worked with longitudinally. So over years of time have bravely invited us into their journey of, of self-discovery and, and ways that they were in fallback. So we've, we've focused a lot on maybe for, for me, one, one way that I might experience fallback. I wanted to maybe underscore or go into a little bit some of the ways that resonated for me in in the book because I think there's certain archetypes that we have of this is the way I want to be perceived this is the identity that I I yearn to be and this is actually what's underneath it what's at risk for me so there's uh, three characters there's Diego Robin and Octavia who all resonated with me in some way I. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but I wanted to start with Octavia had a character who was, I think she called it the good girl. Mm-hmm. And I I certainly have a good boy component for me. And I would characterize the good girl or the good boy as 
being able to really meet the needs of like being really adaptable and meeting the needs of the environment. And in some ways, maybe saying, I, you know, I think Octavia says literally, I actually would say, I don't have any needs. I can get all my needs met. I need to pay attention to the needs of other people really deeply resonated with me. And I'm, I'm holding up the, the book here, which is you can't see if you're listening. Valerie can't really see because it it's blurred, but I have this orange post-it note tab here on that part of the book because it really resonated with me. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, it doesn't have to be the good girl, but like what, why do you think that a strategy like that gets developed and what was, what's at risk for her in, in a moment like that? Mm. Yeah. So first I just, I, I love that you're going deep into the characters or touching into the characters because I loved this aspect of the research and the writing and, you know, I, the, their pseudonyms for all of the characters, but these are real people who allowed me to accompany them as you noted for years. And, and I, they're, they're geniuses. Like they're so wise and brilliant. And I, I get to put my name on a book that shares their wisdom essentially. And I'm just so incredibly grateful for their brilliance showing up in something that I end up getting a lot of kudos for. And I just want to say that they are the real ones who deserve the, whatever accolades come. And I, I'm just very grateful for them because I learned so much. But to your specific question about Octavia, first, I just also want to say, I just love every single character, not just the Diego, Robin, Octavia people, but the characters within them. They're so beautiful and rich and nuanced. And the good girl is one of Octavia's characters that was formed when she was young and really was in an environment where she wasn't taken care of as a young person should be taken care of. She didn't, she didn't have the experience that so many of us have of being able to be a child and knowing that our basic needs were being tended to. And in fact, she needed to tend to the adult's in her environment. And so the, what she learned in this process is I, no one's going to take care of my needs. So I need to not have needs and I need to be focused on everybody else. And this is how I'm going to get loved. This is what makes me lovable is tending to other people. Mm-hmm. So in her adult life, how the good girl shows up is she over efforts and she cares for the people in her life without making her needs known, without asking anything in return. And then she thinks, oh, I'm not going to have my needs met and I don't feel protected. And so another one of her character characters, you know, rushes on the scene to protect her called the unprotected little and says, you need to get the hell out of here because you're doing, you're tending to everyone else and no one's tending to you. Mm -hmm. Mm. There's so many other characters I want to get to. So that's, I think I want to underline again, that that's for me, it's really common. Well, it, it is true for me. And I think it's really common for other people that as a strategy of 
if my needs aren't going to be met, especially when we're younger, we might just be really good at meeting other people's needs. And that gets well received. Other people appreciate that you're meeting their needs. So it's a beautiful strategy. And it's one that I've developed as well, that especially if it felt like there was conflict going on in my house or like my sense of security was being threatened. That was one of my go-tos was snap into the, the good boy. And that's what sounds like happened with Octavia. And what, what, so what you're pointing to here is that there's something depleting about being that way all the time. You're like, well, what, what about my own needs is, is so is that where the unprotected little would come onto the scene? Just like protecting her needs. Well, it's kind of like your characters that you described earlier. There's baby Mikey, you know, this very young, young part. And then there's the gregarious performer who, you know, the, the great gregarious performer gets rewarded. The good girl gets rewarded, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you think, oh, these are the characters who should be here, but they are depleting. They're, there's something not real, authentic, not mutual, about them so there's there's it's like a multiplicity of characters who are who are vying we i talked with octavia a lot about the warring characters you know who does battle like no i need to be here no i do you know and because they're all serving in protection of something that's really important to us and so, yes, the unprotected little would overtake the good girl and say, get the hell out of here. This isn't, you know, this isn't going to to serve your needs. And and I, one of the things that came up with Octavia that I think is so important, and it sounds like it may be a factor with you, is these roles get so ingrained mm -hmm. in, within us that we end up getting typecast in these roles and we can collude in that typecasting, right? So we're always the one tending to other people's needs and that feels good for them. So they're not going to say, don't tend to my needs anymore. Tend to, let me tend to you. Instead, they'll be like, well, this is something that you want to do. And in some ways, and Octavia said, it feels good. It feels good for me to care for others, but not when I'm only caring for others. And so another line of inquiry is how am I colluding in my own typecasting in the way I show up to the scenes of my life? Mm -hmm. And when we can recognize that it's not just them out there doing something to us, but the way that we too keep living into the same story, then we can start to evaluate, is that a story that I want to live into? Is that true for my time? I mean, that's a big question. Is the story that I've been telling myself, is it still true given where I am today? And does a different script need to be written? And it's likely no one else is going to write that script for you. So this is where the good thing about the agency and all of that comes in. Like, how, how can I open up different possibilities, different options for my way of being in the world that aligns with my intentions for me, for my relationship with myself? That was a big inquiry for Octavia a lot of the time. And she had a character, the woman who would come on the scene and serve in that way. Like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to just be in service to you. I am going to be in service to me too. And I'm not sacrificing me for you. In your experience, are we constructing new identities at any given point throughout our entire life? Like if you were to work with someone who's in their 
you know, the back, the back nine of their life and they're in their eighties, let's say, have you had the experience of working with someone who's in their eighties and is maybe constructing? Cause one of the things I guess might come from with this question is I think it's, it's so beautiful the way that we are able to continue unfolding and, and getting in touch with what matters to me now. What do I really want in this situation? Is this still serving me? All these beautiful questions that it seems like we could forever be asking those questions and getting in touch with these deeper desires that maybe we haven't had room to express for most of our life, but that we do now. And I, of course, know that there's plenty of people who are do inner work as long as they're on this planet and who are doing it well into their 80s. But I'm just curious if there's something that comes up for you with regard to, you know, like a, a new identity that someone was, start, was able to start wearing later in their life that they, you know, had created enough space for after doing all of this self-discovery and, and realizing like I could show up in a different way right now than I have been most of my life. Mm. Yes. I love that question. And it, it's so funny because I thought, have I worked with anyone in their eighties? And I have, and I actually work with a lot of people in their fifties, sixties, seventies. And yeah, the, the, the creation of, and I say creation, I don't want it to be like, I am constructing this thing from out here because one way to, that a lot of people think is, oh, there are these five archetypes that, you know, and I want to be that one, or I see this person over here doing this, and this is what I want to do. And I think that all of this lives within us. I don't think we need to go out there to, to find the thing that needs to emerge in order for us to meet our intention. And I think that that's can be problematic because then we're trying to meet someone else's vision of something or expression of something or goal. And it's just another thing that we're not living up to, right? Mm -hmm. So what is the thing within us? What is the part of us that we can cultivate that lives within us, but just hasn't been cultivated? We haven't done the character development around it mm -hmm. to this point. And it takes intention and practice to do that. And, and I have seen people create these new parts of themselves. I don't want to say create again. It's like a, a cultivation of something that lives within. And there are practices to get at doing like where, because you think, well, I know who I am and it's not in me. Right. But, but it is. And there are practices to get to unearthing those parts of self. And then just like I said, you know, the somatic signature around the fallback, there are also somatic signatures around us in our grace, in our bigness, in mm -hmm. our in your big M, right? You know what that feels like. And so even just having the picture of that in our bodies, you know, the feeling of that in our bodies helps us bring that onto the stage more often, helps us cue it. And I think that that's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. I do want to just... We can come back to this if you want to expand on that, but I just want to offer a bit of a caveat around this whole conversation of development, which is that many people don't grow after we've stopped growing physically or they don't grow far and because it has to be a choice. 
It has to be voluntary. And it also is really supported by the context that we are in. It's either supported or hampered by the context that we are in. And there's incredible loss and pain that comes with growing too. And I don't think that we acknowledge that very often. I think it's really important to acknowledge that as you are able to see more and to see yourself in your smallness, that hurts when we stop closing the door on it and saying, well, it's not me, it's them. It was the situation or whatever. That is painful to see ourselves in our smallness. It is painful to think about what were the scenes that cultivated the baby Mikey character? You know, what were the contexts that, that, that forced that character to come into being and, and often in our relational spaces too, and in our professional spaces, there are centers of gravity of our relational space, of our systemic spaces, organizations and teams, and they are invested in us being a certain way and showing up in a certain way. And when we are growing beyond that, it, there's a pull back, and that's one of the triggers for fallback is these contextual gravitational pulls. Wait, we're doing fine just as we are. Why are you moving along? And and so often the person who is growing has to make a decision. How am I going to be in relationship or am I going to be in relationship in these contexts anymore? And so from a romantic relationship perspective, from a familial relationship, from a professional career perspective, we are often deciding whether we can move in these spaces, even with their pools, or if we need to move on and there's loss there too for us and for the people who surround us. So it is not all sweetness and light, this growth thing. And and it doesn't happen quickly and it's not easy. Hmm. Well, thank you for, for bringing that in and naming that. So I think there, there's really a, a couple more things that I want to talk about. And I think we've started to get there a little bit, but one of the things that you wanted to bring into this conversation is implications for individuals, relationships, organizations, and societies. And I think I want to focus on organizations and societies. We've been focusing on individual and, and me as the individual and a lot of it and some of the characters in the story. But we started to get into it a little bit about how as leaders, it's imperative upon us if we're leading an organization, let's say, that we are, do our own work. And so I'm just wondering if you could speak to how you look at the importance of fallback in relation to uh, organizations and to society even. So back in the beginning of the pandemic, I remember having a conversation with one of the key thinkers for my original research on fallback. His name is David McCallum. And he has, he, he was actually the first person to find empirical evidence of fallback in, in his own research study. And we were talking about um, how things had changed as we sat here on our Zoom screens and, and, so much more of us as full people was showing up 
to our workplaces, whether we liked it or not. You mm-hmm. know, there was the, you know, naked baby running across the back of the screen. And, <laughs> and, you know, I know in my own life to hear my husband out yelling at my children. And I'm thinking who who's on the other side, who's also able to hear this. And, you know, the tech challenges and just, you know, going from having an interaction interaction with your spouse in the kitchen over who's doing the dishes to coming into the Zoom room and perhaps trying to be the person that you were before we all co-worked with our spouses and our children and our pets. And he had this beautiful way this beautiful phrase, he said, the artificiality of our compartmentalized lives has been revealed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so to your question about why is this important in organizations, it's because we can't pretend that we are this one person which is really just one part of ourselves showing up to a job every day that doesn't include all of these other aspects of who we are, whether we're still sitting across from each other on the Zoom screen or actually going into the office. And I would argue that we don't want to pretend Mm -hmm. that there is something lost in that, that big M Mike isn't able to show capital M Mike isn't able to show up in the way that he wants to, in the way that you want to, to that kind of environment. And what are we missing out on? What kind of connection and authenticity and possibility is being squashed when Capital M Mike can't come to his job? And I'm thinking about recently an op-ed piece appeared in the New York Times by the United States uh, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy about the epidemic of isolationist loneliness and how that is impacting our health and well-being and that we need to do something to address this. And I believe strongly that these parts of ourselves are longing to be seen so that they can come out in their fullness so we can be intentional about bringing our authenticity and our values and our fears into all aspects of our lives, our professional lives being a primary one. And the fact that we feel like there's a part that is not welcome that we have to hide is really contributing to the loneliness that we are experiencing. And we're shortcutting the possibilities of our being truly, fully human to the work that we're doing, whatever that work is. You and I are fortunate to do human work, to talk about being human and to invite that in the people that we accompany. But even if you're doing accounting, there's a component of that there too, you know, Mm -hmm. or law. I mean, that's huge in everything, in, in every aspect of our professional lives. There's a longing to be more than just a cog in the wheel and to be able to contribute the wisdom, the brilliance that comes when we can bring our full selves. 
So Jennifer Garveyberger was one of the um, key thinkers in my original research. And I remember talking to her about this over a decade ago. And I said, what can we do in organizations? And she said, you know, I think organizations need to create environments where we can be clear and honest with ourselves and each other about what allows us to bring our bigness. So what, it, what context invites the, you know, our center of gravity capacity capacities, but we also need to make it safe not to. So we don't just write off baby Mike or the gregarious performer. Oh, he's always that way. He's always showcasing strutting down the court. And that doesn't feel real to me. And I don't really want to have a relationship with him, but where we can bring all of ourselves. And I just thought that was so powerful. And as I came to the end of the writing of the book, I convened the key thinkers from the original research again to ask, like, what what have you been thinking about? What, What don't we know still? And I remember Jennifer saying again, like, just to be able to feel into the smallness, the bigness, all aspects of ourselves and to, to name that and to name that with others, like what, what possibilities that opens up for all of us for exploring, not just within ourselves, but what are these intractable problems in the world that we're trying to solve? And what might be the fears that are motivating our entrenchment in those? And 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 what if we gave voice to those? If we could honestly say, I'm scared of not belonging, of not being loved, of not feeling competent in this, of not being able to offer something valuable to the world. And that's why I'm digging in my heels and circling the wagons here. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it, interesting that you brought up accounting because my background is actually in accounting, which I, I don't know if you were familiar with, but it's still something I do part time. So I very much care. Uh, ostensibly, it seems like a, a job where you would just be doing crunching the numbers, making sure you get the information right. And I could speak anecdotally, I've spoken to a lot of people in accounting. It's part of being human. We all want to have that sense of belonging and that we can be all of who we are in the workplace. And as you beautifully articulated, COVID, among many other things, it seems to shatter all of the walls that we had formerly constructed around this myth that we could show up to work one way and, and be a certain version of ourselves. And then shut that off and then kind of let go. I, I picture coming home from work as this big, like, like this, this sigh of relief of I can finally be me again, especially in my early days where I just, I, I hadn't done any of the personal development work and I, I didn't have the tools to get in touch with what mattered to me or how I wanted to show up or, or the pain of what it was to, to not know any of that. And yeah, COVID really shattered that. We had no choice but to, as soon as we got off, maybe a really important work call, our our personal life is just waiting for us right outside there. And so it's something that we've probably known for a really long time, but that we've been really faced with and encountering at a, a much deeper level now 
is that there's no, you can't blur the lines. It's, it's going to come at a significant cost if you try to. And so that's, that's beautifully articulating what the importance of embracing all of us is really. And I think we covered, we covered so much ground, Valerie. Is there, before I get to the back end questions here, is there anything that we haven't spoken about today that you would like to bring into the conversation now? Any loops that you want to close or anything at all, even if it doesn't pertain to what we've spoken about that feels important to you right now? Yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying that the these final kind of thoughts about the the why of doing this in organizations, it reminded me of the conversation about being about typecasting ourselves in certain roles and how we also do that in teams, like in our organizations and teams. And so I've done some work with teams around and groups around how we always show up in a certain role to a group. And often we don't even, it's so unconscious to us, you know, we don't know why do I take up this role in the group? Why am I the one who's the scribe of being, you know, far too detailed in the answering of the questions, <laughs> you know, and what does that give me and what does it give other people and what does it take away as well? And so I I've done this exploration where foot with folks from a theater perspective, like what role are you taking up and what name would you give yourself and what your character that shows up to the scene and what's the backstory, the origin story on that character. So what does, what's at risk to you? What do you value that you feel like this character is there in representation of, and then a mutual sharing around of that, because we all know that the gregarious performer comes out at this time and you acting like he's not there, although you wouldn't because you like him, but there are some downsides <laughs> to him, right? Yeah. But so you acting like he's not there isn't doing anything for us. And if you can give him a name, then we can actually be in conversation about it. And if I can give you my my word perfect name or the curator, you know, the one who creates these flawless flowing, you know, programs and environments, then you can call me on that. But if we also go deeply into what's this about? Like, what do I feel like I need to offer to this group or to represent and to, to not let fall off to the sides? Then we can start to be each other's accountability, I think, around that and saying, is, is the gregarious performer really who needs to be here right now? And on top of that, we can start to say, I kind of want to be the gregarious performer sometime. Can you, can I take that role? And can, you know, here, my role is up for grabs too. Like it does, it allows us to be a little bit more fluid in what we can take on. And when we switch up roles, we start to see things in a different way too. In addition to having appreciation for the other people and the challenges of actually living into those roles. So I just wanted to bring that up, that the whole colluding and typecasting of ourselves in organizations, too, yeah. is really powerful. Oh, it's it's absolutely pervasive in organizations. I, I certainly had, I mean, one, one of the roles that I would take on a team is uh, maybe the peace, the peacemaker or... Or also, as, especially as I grew in my career and have grown in my career, there's a like hyper individual part of myself that just like I want to 
take on as much myself as possible because I know that I can get it done and that avoids maybe conflict and having to correct someone else's work. And it's, mm-hmm. there's, I think that's very common organizationally is like, I could do this better myself. So I'm just going to step in and maybe take it, it. It comes at a significant cost. to the learning and growth of other people, if I'm just doing all the work and correcting all the mistakes and if I'm the peacemaker, the, a lot of times, which is a beautiful thing, of course, that I am able to maybe mediate conflict and and help people see multiple perspectives. But I might there's a few things that might happen. I might throw myself in the middle of something where I where I don't maybe I'm not wanted, so I start to enter a conflict that isn't mine to resolve, and that robs other people that are in the conflict of navigating the the challenge and developing a skill set around managing the conflict. And it's also in a weird way, it can be an avoidance of those uncomfortable feelings for me that I might not speak up when I see that something is off. Like this, this actually, I'm not okay with this, that I, I will default to whatever's the path of least resistance that will not ruffle feathers right now. So there's, there's so many different roles that people take at organizations, not just in relationships or in every day outside of work encounters, it's it's it might even be even more important at at the workplace because we all do fall fall into certain roles all the time. So I'm really glad that you brought that in. Yeah, those are beautiful examples. Very rich. Thank you. So I do just have a, a couple more questions for you, Valerie. I, I always ask more type of rapid fire questions at the end. They they don't need to be quick answers. We have plenty of time here, but these are more of my go-tos that I like to ask everyone at the end. So what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? So I have two. One of them I'm just realizing might be connected to my family dinner table upbringing eating the food that, that, that we grew. So we have a small garden plot in our backyard and I grow blackberries. And Mm. so, and I have berries every morning at breakfast. And so at this time of year, they're starting to blossom. They're not yet ready, but I go out every day and I look at them to see, are you ready? Are you ready for me to, to pick you? And so just <laughs> out and picking the blackberries, what I'm growing, you know, living off the land with my blackberries <laughs> and then enjoying them and just feeling that connection to the earth and life and and toils and knowing that Mm. they may not always end up growing the way I want to, or as bountiful as I want to, but just appreciating what is, and they have ruined me for store-bought blackberries. So I only have them when, you know, (laughs) when they grow on my land. So that's one. And then another, and I think of the, why does it bring me joy? And it's a couple of reasons. So another one is my goodnight routine with my daughter, who is nine now. So she's on the cusp of this no longer being a desirable goodnight routine for her because my son has already passed this point. Um, but I sing goodnight songs 
every night. And even when I am traveling, I at least send a video. And if other people are traveling with me, they are performers in our good good night routine. And they make it much more fun than I do because they end up doing dance moves and all sorts of stuff (laughs) that I don't do. But but the normal, ordinary, everyday good night routine is singing these songs to my daughter. And somehow, no matter what has transpired in the course of the day, there's a sweetness in those moments of closing out the day together with those songs. And so I think that there's a joy in that and also just kind of a release like, oh, we made it through another day <laughs> and I get to go lay in my bed and I find great joy in sleep. So mm-hmm. very sweet. And in, in the case of blackberries, maybe very tart. And I want to try, <laughs> I want to try some of those blackberries. I'm, I'm very accustomed to the store bought, but I love me some blackberries. So one day I'll, I'll have to try those homegrown blackberries of yours. Yeah, you got it. So what is something that you're, I'm sure there's many things that you're practicing, but I, I'm always, these days I'm very much in practice of things a lot of times. So what, what's, what are some things that you're practicing these days? So I love this idea of being in the practice because I think that we are forever in the practice or that we need to always be in the practice. And in truth, I'm in the practice of being in the noticing of my fallback. And the finding the courage to reflect on it and be honest with myself about it. And I'm in the practice of saying it out loud to myself and owning up to it with others. And I'm in the practice of letting my children know that I'm in the practice of being the best human I can be. And it's hard and painful sometimes. And and I don't always get it right. I think I find that kids tend to think that we have it all figured out mm-hmm. to a certain point. My son, who's 13 now, is certainly thinking that <laughs> we know nothing. <laughs> but but I think the danger in that is they kind of feel like, oh, well, you get to be in your 40s and you just know everything and nothing is hard for you. You just kind of have it all figured out. And I think that belief sets up a a feeling of why am I the only one who can't get it right? And also this feeling that at some point you do just get it right. And so it's really important for me to let my kids know that I am in the practice of many things, not least of which is showing up as the best human as I can in this world. Mm. Um, And then I'm trying to think more practically what a practice is that I'm engaging in. My intention for this year is to find more ease. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in the practice of listening to my heart around what is easeful. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for me because I am such a... um, a, a doer and a yeser um, and a yeser. <laughs> <laughs> so just practicing, I, I don't even want to say trying to be more easeful because that's a counter. I'm trying to be more easeful. Efforting my way into ease. <laughs> God damn it. Right. <laughs> I am determined <laughs> to be easeful. Well, they both resonate with me. So thank you for sharing. What do you think's, 
if not the kindest, like what's something really kind that someone could say about you? So the first thing that popped to mind was that I'm thoughtful, but that's a me that I want to be, you know, like that's, we've talked about that a lot in the past couple of hours. So, and I think it is true. And it's also a me that I want to be. So I, I, I don't know that that's the one I want to settle on. I'll tell you something that someone did say to me recently that I didn't realize until he said it about myself. And that is, I see you more and more moving in the space where your talents meet your, no, your wounds meet your talents. Mm -hmm. I see you more and more moving in the space where your wounds meet your talents. And I thought that was really beautiful and also spoke to the point of what's hard in life. I love that one. There's a, a saying that I've heard, I believe it's Josh Waitskin. I don't know if you know who he is, but your superpower is often located next to your deepest wound, I believe is is the phrase. And when I heard that, it really resonated with me. So. I'm in, I'm in touch with that in this moment. I've got two more things. Well, I guess if you, if there's anywhere I, I want to invite, if, if you listener have found this conversation valuable, then you should definitely read the book. I really enjoyed reading the book. I still have a little bit to go, but the book is called Leaving the Ghost Light Burning, Illuminating Fallback and Embrace of the Fullness of You. So I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Where else would you invite listeners to connect with you? Website, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, my website is called Ghost Light Leadership. My business is called Ghost Light Leadership. And so it's ghostlightleadership.com. We didn't really talk about the ghost light. You need to talk about it now. So the ghost light, which is the name of the book and the name of the business are in both of those is a single light bulb that's left burning on the stage in theaters around the world whenever theaters are dark. And there are two kind of meanings behind the ghost light or purposes for it. And one is located in the lore of theater, the theater superstition that says that the spirits of a theater, when they think that the theater is dark, will rush the stage and cause all sorts of mischief. But if you leave the low ghost light burning, then you let them know that they are still welcome there. And so they're less likely to be, be mischievous. And the other purpose of the ghost light is more practical, which is if a theater is dark and someone were to wander onto the theater stage, they could easily stumble off the edge and into the orchestra pit and cause damage to themselves and cause damage to others. And I think both of those purposes resonate for me with fallback and the illumination of the fullness of oneself, even the, the, the ghost, the spirits, in that if we invite them into the light, into the illumination, they are able to offer the gifts and the lessons that we spend much of our lives pushing away and trying to, to lock behind doors. And when we do that, 
we often stumble into the pit and cause problems for ourselves and injury to others. So I just love this idea of the ghost light and it connects deeply with the the theater approach that I use in all of my work. And so you can learn more about that at ghostlightleadership.com. There are ways to engage through ghost light workshops, programs that I put on regularly that offer a deep dive into the exploration of the fullness of you and my coaching offerings, my speaking, facilitation, that kind of thing. So there are ways to reach out on there to connect with me. And I am on LinkedIn as well. I'd love to hear from your listeners. Awesome. Well, the, the ghost light is an excellent metaphor for everything that we've spoken about. So I'm glad we we're able to weave it into the conversation. So now I have just two more questions for you. And, and one is I, every episode I raise awareness for an organization of guest choice, and you have selected the Monarch School in San Diego, which seems to be doing really amazing work. And I'm just wondering if you want to say a a word or two about the Monarch School, why you chose that organization, why you think the work that they're doing is so important. Yeah, so the Monarch School is the only school in the nation created just for kids who are homeless. And it's a K through 12 school. And it started out, it's in San Diego, California, where I live. And it started out just serving homeless children and offering them a place to come, a safe place, a solid, steady place to come and learn and to be fed and to receive the, you know, support that all of our children receive in schools, the the myriad ways that that development, healthy development happens, even for my kids, when you think about what your kids didn't get during COVID because they were at home, you know, every kid needs those kind of services, but then the services beyond that in terms of clothing and food and care being seen. Mm-hmm. And that has expanded over the years, I think over about 20 years to include services for the families of the homeless, the the parents in terms of counseling and and help with skill development and you know job placement and housing and it's a collaboration with the the department of education san diego district and the city to create this and i just think it's a beautiful a beautiful organization when i so often when we are in fallback when we can't access our bigger selves it's because some aspect of our our earliest needs, you know, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs around, you know, sustenance and shelter and safety and all of that aren't available to us. And I can tell you honestly that if I couldn't provide those things for my children, then I would not be thinking about much of anything that we've talked about mm-hmm. in our conversation today. And so just imagining that my children didn't have those basic needs met is there are people who live that way. And I just think it's beautiful that this, this school tends to them. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for bringing it into the awareness of me and and therefore the audience. So I will certainly be linking to the Monarch school in the show notes with a way to donate. I will be donating myself and uh, proud to support such a a wonderful cause. So thanks again for bringing it in. And the final question, Valerie, that I ask in every interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. 
And I love, I've now heard this 70 to 80 times and there's so many, the myriad answers have been all wonderful. So we'd love to hear in your words, what it means to live a meaningful life. I think it means for me just to live with intention and to be really clear about that, it, what that is from moment to moment. And I think it changes throughout our lives. I think it changes from context to context, relationship to relationship. And I haven't always been really clear on mine. I think that so often we just move through the world without thinking about for, for what purpose, you know, what, what is in my conversation with you, Mike, what, what do I desire? What do I hope this will, will yield in my raising of two children? You know, what's my intention for, for that relationship, for the outcome of that? And just to think more broadly about why are we doing, why are we here? Mm-hmm. You know, Mike search for meaning. That's a big question. Why, why are we here? Like what mark do I want to leave on this world? Not in a huge mark. Everybody knows my name kind of way, but in a, in the, in the conversation to conversation, touch to touch, you know, what, mm-hmm. what do I want that experience to be for me and for others. And so I think that asking that question, what is my intention living in an intentional life helps me stay connected to that. Well, I, I really appreciate that response and, and the way that you named, it's not this dent in infinity major impact way. There's, there's a intention that could be brought into every single moment. And it's a it's a beautiful question to ask. What is my purpose of doing this interview? What is my purpose of doing, or my intention behind any action that I take? And getting in the habit, the practice of asking that question, seems like it would be a really fruitful experience to get more connected to who you are and and what matters to you. So, I experience you as as living with a lot of intention, and I experience reading this book and at the encounters that although it's only been a couple of times, the encounters with you is very, I mean, I know that you said thoughtful is a way that you like to be recognized. And I I experience you to be a very thoughtful person, a very caring person. A lot of the stories that you share, there's one about yourself that you shared about a time where you didn't show up as the way that you wanted to show up with your children. And I think one of the most powerful ways that we can foster more connection amongst whether it's in one-on-one relationships or in groups or whoever might be listening right now is by just saying, I am a human being and I mess up and I'm inherently flawed. And there's something really beautiful about that. And I think that that's really the, the special sauce behind all of the rigor and research and dedication that you put into your work, which is really special. You put a lot of, clearly a lot of energy. This was over years and years of collecting research and uh, getting to know people clearly at a pretty intimate level. But also, I mean, what really drives, I think, conversations like this isn't the theory or the intellect behind it, but the humanity. And I've, I've encountered a lot of developmental conversations that are very intellectual, that are very heady, that demonstrate, okay, this person knows their shit, but that, that lack that eros or the, you know, the special sauce behind what it means to be human. So 
the dance that you do between that is a beautiful one. And it was such a gift to be able to, to have that for two hours today in this podcast. What a, what a gift it is to be able to sit down with you. So thank you, Valerie. Oh, Mike, it was a gift for me too. And I just so appreciate your bringing so much of yourself to this conversation and in the moment and in in your reflections beforehand. And I just look forward to many more in the future. Mm, me too, including including some blackberries. <laughs> that's right. This is and the time. Make your way out to San Diego. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, to all the listeners, thank you for listening. I, I hope that you got a lot out of it in these past two hours. I certainly did. I hope that you are embracing maybe one part of yourself that you haven't been able to embrace after listening to this conversation and uh, take good care and sending lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace. Thank you.